We had a great first service, and as uh, Jason mentioned, we had like four or five visitors in the first service. I was surprised on Father's Day if people got up early and came, but um, and uh, even some new faces in the first service. But if you're here uh, or out in the courtyard or online, welcome uh, to Calvary Chapel Richmond. Glad to have each and every one of you here. As Jason mentioned, uh, he's not uh, part of the young adults anymore. He turns 40 this week, so he's going to be old now. So... Um, <laughs> We celebrated yesterday. He's turning 40. And then and then Jackson up here on keyboard, I told him earlier this morning, happy almost Father's Day. Uh, his wife will be having a baby later this month. So you're still young. Jason's now, he's 40. He's old now. You know, I learned a lot in my 40s, Jason. So, you know, look forward to all that you learn over the next decade. Uh, it was a learning year, year, couple of years for me. So. But uh, happy Father's Day to all of the fathers. Let's give a hand to all of the dads that are here today. That kind of looks like a charcoal brisket, uh, or what do you call that? Thing? Uh, but um, uh, how many other dads will be cooking your own meal today? Uh, yeah, I think Marty and me, uh, you know, a couple of you, you don't trust, you don't trust them on the grill, do you? Now you're like, they're not... You can make the side, you can make the dessert, but uh, the grill, uh, no, looking forward to spending time uh, with, with our family, and I'm sure many of you are as well, so uh, aren't you glad that we have the perfect example of God, our Heavenly Father? Uh, we're going to be looking at some things uh, relate, you know, the text today is in Acts, but uh, there are some things that I think are really relevant to us as fathers that we'll look at this morning as well. I wanted to... Just say uh, for our trip to Israel, uh, we have um, we have about 38 spots taken uh, of 50. So we have about 12 spaces left. And the reason I mentioned that we've had some additions, subtractions, additions, subtractions, but I think we've leveled around 38. Uh, before we open up to some folks outside of Calvary Chapel that have expressed interest to me and some other people, hey, I would love to come with your church. Uh, we would just want to kind of take the next couple of weeks to kind of reserve, again, let uh, anyone that attends here have kind of first right of refusal. So there's about 12 spots left. And uh, now we don't need to fill 50. 40 on the bus of 50 is really nice too because you just have a little extra room. And so we're, we don't mind that either. Uh, it's just cost, you know, it, it's the same price, doesn't change in, in any way. So, uh, but we have about 12 seats left. So if anyone says, hey, uh, I just inherited money, I can go after all, whatever else it is, uh, then come on and join us and sign up. You just have to catch up on the payment schedule uh, the later you come in, and um, and I would think that by September we'll probably fill it all, but uh, before we ask people that have reached out to us that don't attend here, and there may be other Calvary chapels and other churches that knew we were going, so just letting you know that. This Wednesday, uh, I'll be in Psalm 119, longest chapter in the Bible, and we'll finish on Friday. So if you come, uh, it's going to be a great time. Uh, no, we're, we're going to have a good time uh, looking at Psalm 119, a very encouraging psalm. Uh, and uh, I think that you know, those of you that uh, may be traveling or whatever, you can watch online as well, because uh, we will have that streaming. And we have a few more psalms to cover between now and September. But this is uh, the longest and just one of the most uh, encouraging psalms in the entire Scripture and then the next day, uh, on Thursday, I'm hosting 40-plus Calvary Chapel pastors right here in the building. We'll, we'll kind of take this space over here and turn it into 
tables. We'll be praying for each other's churches all over the state, a few from North Carolina, and that God does work a revival in theirs. Normally we have about 20, maybe 25 guys at this time. We have 42 coming. So uh, there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm about us gathering to encourage one another and pray over each other's churches and what God's doing in other cities around the state and down in North Carolina. So be praying with us. And thank you for the small team that's going to help us uh, with serving and uh, all of that on Thursday. So uh, be praying for that. And then lastly, we're going we're to be praying for revival this morning. I was telling the 8.30 service, uh, when you look at all the issues that our country has, I mean, obviously the big, the big issue is just rebellion towards God. So they, uh, everybody does that which is right in their own eyes, and they just kind of set themselves up as their own God. And we don't really need God, although we do want him to kind of bless America and give us a really good Wall Street and all this other stuff, but, uh, but we don't need him in any other way. But the, one of the big fundamental problems in our country is fatherless homes. Yeah, and if you've been involved in prison ministry, you've been involved in uh, certain parts of the school systems, you see the effects of fatherless homes and and um, and divorce and all kinds of things. And many of you, uh, either yourselves or people in your family, have gone through divorces, and God does heal and all that stuff. And we're we're thankful for that. But at the same time, there's so many kids that are being raised by society, being raised by the streets, being raised by themselves. And, uh, and that's why we have so many of the issues we have. And so uh, God even says in the book of Malachi, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest he bring a curse on the earth. Well, I'm here to tell you, there is already a curse on our nation because of the abandonment of fathers. And uh, so it's so essential if we're going to see revival that we would see dads go back and make things right with their kids and families be restored and healing. So we've been praying for revival for a long time, over 15 years, because we know that that's the only solution. Uh, but you know, God, I believe, if revival comes, there'll be a lot of houses that are repaired. There'll be a lot of family relationships, a lot of fathers uh, with their relationships restored. Um, just for this, again, uh, it's sometimes a little tight. If you are newer here, we've been getting on our knees ever since the pandemic started. And just to humbling ourselves before the Lord, we don't have the old-fashioned knee pads that churches used to have. Uh, we don't even have padding on the floor, so just uh, do it at your own risk. But uh, if you'd like to get on your knees for about 45 seconds of silence, we just pray before the Lord and ask for His intervention in our nation, in our own lives, and in this church. And then um, I'll close. And we'll be praying for the nation of Malaysia today, as we've been praying for one country every week. God loves the people there, and we want to pray for that country this morning. So if you're able to get on your knees, please do so. If you can't, uh, that's fine. Just sit right there and pray with us. If you're home and you can do it in your living room, join us. And as we just take about 45 seconds of silence, pray that God would send revival. We desperately need it. We'll be looking at this in Acts chapter 2 this morning as well. Let's pray.
Father, we once again, we come to you, the true and living God. We thank you here on this Father's Day that you are a good, good Father. And Jesus, you even taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. So Lord, we come to you and we acknowledge, Lord, we are children that need your help. We are a nation, Lord, that needs to be rescued. We are a people, uh, there's so many in darkness that need your light. Uh, Lord, there's so many broken families. There's so many people that have been abused and hurt. There's so many people, Lord, that are in addictions and sin and and in the darkness of sin and don't even know how to get out of it. There's people that are, Lord, in sin and don't even know they're in sin, don't even know that there is such a thing. And so, Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit brings the conviction of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for the freedoms we have in this country, but, Lord, we pray that you'd open the eyes of those that are in darkness. Lord, you'd have fathers that are afar off first come to you as their heavenly father and then go and make things right with their kids or their uh, spouse or their ex-wife. Lord, we have so many people, Lord, that need uh, not only this, the work of salvation, but, Lord, all the work of healing and discipleship. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, from coast to coast, from city to city, all around this country, Lord, that you would do a work of revival and, Lord, just opening eyes. And we pray that it would start in the household of God. There'd be revival and an awakening in the church. Uh, Lord, even as we'll look at it, there would be uh, an outpouring as we see in Acts chapter 2 and the churches have uh, seen repentance take place in the pews and the chairs and, the uh, Lord, the altars of our churches in this nation, even in the pulpits, Lord, where there needs to be repentance as well. Lord, we pray in this room you'd wash and cleanse all of us, Lord, uh, from all of our sins, even things we walked in here, Lord. We ask for your cleansing power. Lord, we pray for the nation of Malaysia. We pray, Lord, that uh, you'd bring revival to that nation just as we pray for this country, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters all over the world. We pray that you would touch them, heal them, place your hand of grace uh, and strength upon them, Lord. And lastly, Lord, I just pray for all the fathers in this room, Lord, that we would walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would grow in your grace. And Lord, help us to be the fathers that you've called us to be. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for praying with us. And if you have your Bibles, I know Jason already asked if you need one, uh, Acts chapter 2 this morning. We'll finish Acts chapter 2, working our way through Acts chapter 2. And as we've done the last couple of weeks, we'll read a couple of verses that we read last week just to overlap so we kind of get this text within the larger context of what has taken place there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. This is our third week in the second chapter, and our final week in the second chapter. But uh, I read verses 40 and 41 at the close of last week, but let's read them again as they kind of uh, take us from what took place right into uh, the afterglow, if you will, of this outpouring of the Spirit. Starting in verse 40, we read these two verses last week, but let's read them again. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear 
came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray again. Father, we know that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. What you did in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, you can do again. Lord, we pray that you do it in us, in this place, in us individually. Lord, we pray that uh, right now you'd remove, as was prayed earlier, every distraction. We're not thinking about this afternoon or tonight, tomorrow or this week, but Lord, uh, we'd fix our eyes upon you, Jesus. I ask for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit in this room. Upon me, I could never teach your word without your help. Lord, I pray those that are watching online, those that are here, those that are out in the courtyard, Lord, that uh, you would still our minds and let us hear from you, Jesus, for we desire to grow in your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Eternal life is the guaranteed promise of salvation through Jesus. But that new life to one that has come to Christ has only just begun. It was this very month in 1990 that me and my wife walked forward at an altar call at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. I, every year in June, I always remember that was the time that we walked forward and gave our lives to Christ. But that was just the beginning point, amen? The grace that saved us is also the grace for those next steps. And for these 3,000 souls, everything that they were living for up until that point was now going to change. Did you have some things change when you got saved? the things you used to live for. Their lives had a whole new meaning and purpose. And they would join with the disciples and the apostles, who, as you recall, they had waited for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And these would be the initial believers that would make up the beginnings of the church that Jesus established. And what began there in Jerusalem on Pentecost, and then the days that followed, is still, still, still the blueprint for the outline of this church, Calvary Chapel Richmond, and the church, all churches, 2,000 years later. If you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, What Was Birth and Revival? The Life and Priorities of the Early Church. And these priorities are so critical to apply and understand for all believers. But also a great reminder for fathers here on Father's Day. You know, as dads are called to set the same example in the home as the apostles set in the church. Do you agree with that? Dads are called to set the same exact example. Now, if we take one step back, the Lord wants you to see this timeline. <laughs> we take one, he, he's telling you, what I did in Acts, I can do it again. <laughs> take a step back at this timeline. If my, well, that, okay, everything's working again. So 
It's a miracle. Uh, look at this timeline here. Uh, it's kind of an eye chart, I apologize. But you can see that the three-year ministry of Jesus encompasses a lot, so I didn't put all the details in there. But you have the three-year ministry of Jesus. What I wanted you to see in this timeline is look at what took place in the little tiny gap of time from the time that Jesus goes into Jerusalem that Passover week. We have that Passover week, and then a couple days, uh, or at the end of the Passover week, Jesus goes to the cross. You have three days later after the cross, you have the resurrection. Then after the resurrection, Jesus rises on the day of the Feast of First Fruits. You have 40 days of Jesus walking the earth, and then you have at the end of the 40 days, 10 days from the ascension, he ascends up into heaven. You got the arrow over there going up. The Holy Spirit comes down 10 days later and baptizes the church. So in about 53 days, you have a lot take place. All that takes place in a short period of time. Uh, it's all Jesus finishing the Father's plan of salvation, Jesus establishing the church and finally empowering the church and filling the church with the baptism and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And on that miraculous day that Peter preaches, first from the book of Joel, then he preaches from Psalms, you recall, and then he gave the words of Jesus, the eyewitness account of what they had seen in Jesus' death and resurrection. And those 3,000 souls that responded that day, that represents a 2,500% increase in souls in one day. Isn't that amazing? 2,500% for those of you that love math, those of you that don't, well, there's your number. But, um, but that started with over 120 that were praying and praising and proclaiming. Then you have this exponential growth. But understand that the exponential increase of repentance, of souls saved, and new disciples in Pentecost, it's not the norm, right? How many of you have gone to a church and saw 3,000 people get saved that day? I never have. I've seen it on Billy Graham crusades. He had a million people at a crusade in Korea. And he filled up the Los Angeles Coliseum back in the uh, late 60s or something like that. So there has been times where we've seen this, but it's not the norm. It's not the everyday. Revivals are always under the sovereignty of God. Amen? It's always the grace. It's always the outpouring of God how and when he chooses to move in specific places and time. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, all revivals are in some way a return to Pentecost. Every revival in history repeats some aspect of that first great outpouring. You know, Sam Nadler was here a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine. He's reminded me numerous times that Calvary Chapel itself was born in a revival when Pastor Chuck started the church there in Costa Mesa. Sam himself got saved in the Jesus Revolution when he came back from the Vietnam War. But Calvary Chapel was born in that revival of the late 60s and early 70s, that Jesus Revolution. We just saw the film recently. And because it was born in a revival... Sometimes there are misplaced expectations by some Calvary Chapel pastors even. Why aren't dozens of college kids getting saved every single week? 
walking in here in bare feet and getting saved. You see, outside of revival, you have the steady, consistent, laboring, tilling, serving, discipling, and waiting for God to do a greater work. Amen? Almost all revivals, somebody had to wait before it came. But he's done a far greater work many times. In Selwyn Hughes' book, Revival, Times are Refreshing, if you want to uh, look it up on Amazon, you can look it up. Uh, Selwyn Hughes, Revival, Times are Refreshing. Citing the start of the Welsh Revival in 1904 that was led by evangelist Evan Roberts, he had been desperately praying for revival. But it began when at, at a camp meeting, a shy 16-year-old girl in the meeting jumped up and blurted out, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. And it ignited the revival. One little girl, 16-year-old girl's just boldness, she was shy, jumps up and shouts that, and that ignited the whole Welsh revival. He goes on to speak about two additional revivals, one in America, one in Africa. He says, consider again the great revival that took place in New York City in 1847. A Dutch businessman, Jeremiah Lamphere, advertised a midday prayer meeting at his office. At the first meeting, six people were present. So mightily did the Spirit move among those six that within six months, 100,000 New York City businessmen were in prayer meetings all over the city. We could use that in New York right now today. Amen? We could use a lot of prayer meetings instead of beatings on the subway and people being shot and all kinds of crime and things that are taking place. He tells this one about uh, revival in Uganda. He says, in Uganda, a revival broke out when one Christian walked more than 100 miles to ask forgiveness of another Christian he had wronged 20 years previously, and revival broke out. Now, I had never heard of the Uganda story. I'd heard of the other two revivals. I've said for years, I've told Pastor Trevor, I've told some of our leaders, I've talked to Sam about it, I've talked to other pastors about it. I have said this, I know, dozens of times in the last 10 to 15 years. I know revival could be close. When I see believers go and make things right with believers that they have harmed, mistreated, and broken fellowship with or gossiped about, I'll know revival could be close. Some of you are nodding your head. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'll know revival could be closed. But one Ugandan man did it, and he goes and walks 100 miles, and he makes things right, and revival breaks out. The 120 that gathered there, they were of one mind and one accord. It says they had all things in common. Their prayers prayers were not uh, hindered by discord. You know how discord hinders a marriage, hinders any relationship, hinders a church relationship. But it wasn't hindered by discord. And now, although it's God that sends revival, and it's God that ignited the early church and filled them with a contagious joy and filled them with a powerful witness, and although it was God alone that had saved so many 
souls at one time. The disciples did by this little construct that we know even over there in the children's ministry. It's a little song that goes, trust and obey, there's no other way, right? The disciples, by trusting and obeying, they put themselves in a place to receive from God. Does that make sense to you? They put themselves in a place to receive from God. You cannot receive from God rebelling against God. You cannot receive from God saying, I won't do it that way. You cannot receive from God refusing to pray. But if you say, Lord, I'm going to humble myself. We actually, when I got, we got on our knees earlier, that put us in a place to receive from the Lord. Amen? He loves a contrite heart. He loves humility. So the disciples... Remember, 10 days, they waited, they waited, they waited. They put themselves in a place to receive. Now, that doesn't mean that God's going to do the exact same thing every time. We don't know what we'll receive, but we know it'll be good. Amen? As we look at what took place after the repentance of around 3,000 souls, we understand that revival and multitudes coming to Christ isn't the norm. It's not the rule. I'll be happy one day when 10 people get saved on a Sunday. I mean, I'm happy when one, so don't get me wrong. I'm, one soul, uh, I'm happy. But I mean, 10 would be 10 times that. So that was, that's an amazing exponential growth. But even Jesus said, so it's not the norm that you see 3,000 get saved in one day. That's why we only have this recorded here in Acts chapter 2. But even Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, it's up on the screen, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Few. That might make us say, well, very few are going to be saved. Then why even bother? Well, because Jesus also said this. He also said, behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white to harvest. Jesus, is it narrow or is there harvest? Yes. And in one sense, difficult and narrow, he also says, but I can blow the doors wide open at any time. Amen? Anytime. And Jesus, we know he's the Lord of the harvest. So whether there's a revival or whether there's not a revival, whether it's one soul or whether it's 10,000 souls, the results always belong to the Lord, and that's good because you and I can't produce any results. This is the summer season. I'm learning this with every plant. Every year I, I, can, I could stand over and tell the plant, this is what I want you to do. It never listens. Right? I can say, I, I gave you miracle growth. I gave you this. I even put you where it, I read the little thing. It said, put you here in the sun and you will do this and you're not doing it. Right? Because God's the one that gives the results, whether it's plants or souls or anything, right? It's the Lord. But the surrender of our lives, we can't, we can't make results, we can't produce results, but the surrender of our lives the seeking him first and his kingdom, his righteousness, and how we prioritize our lives, that responsibility, that privilege is ours. Amen? We can prioritize according to what God has said, and we must. Uh, same as it was with the early disciples. It's not any different. And the life and priorities of the early church should be the norm with the body of Christ but sadly, they're not the norm with the body of Christ. And of course, this is a hindrance to disciples being made. 
And it very well may be hindering revivals that God might have otherwise poured out. If more of us were a Jeremiah Lamphere, if more of us were a 16-year-old girl standing up saying, I will praise the Lord even though I don't feel like it or it's uncomfortable for me. God, we can thank him for this. We can praise God for his grace and his instructions and his correction. But even if we're not where we should be, God will be gracious to correct us and say, no, no, this is what you need to go back and do. And isn't he gracious and patient with all of us? Or is it just me? Gracious and patient with all of us. I wouldn't be near as patient with me as God is with me. Um, I say that to my wife, too. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure you have people in your life that you say the same thing, too. But thank the Lord that he's a God of new beginnings and a God of fresh starts. Because even though large-scale revivals, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000, whatever the case may be, even though large-scale revivals are really rare... He revives individuals like you and me all over the world every single day. I'll be in, I mentioned I'll be in Psalm 119 on Wednesday night. And it's amazing. Um, how many of you read Psalm 119? It's the longest chapter, but okay, good. Um, I mean, not longer than books of the Bible. It's just one chapter, but it's, it's a lot of verses. And it's amazing if you go through Psalm 119, and if you haven't read it lately, go back and read it, even if you're not able to be with us on Wednesday night. It's amazing how often the psalmist in 119 refers to what I call personal revival, where he says, revive me, revive me, revive me, revive me. You'll see it. Uh, I won't give you the number. You've got to come Wednesday or watch Wednesday, and, I'll, and we'll talk about it. But no matter what happens with others, we can be revived. Amen? We, personally. If the whole world says, I don't want revival, and you say you do, God will still revive you. But these early believers that had grown in number from a pre-Pentecost uh, prayer meeting to the post-Pentecost church in Jerusalem, they remained unified and serving Jesus. And the result, it wasn't this short little revival that quickly faded. No, it was a it was a harvest of fruit that was sustained, and there was continual souls being saved and people being added, and people growing as they abided in Christ. Because we have to abide, we have to get it rooted in Jesus, John chapter 15. The late Dr. J. Vernon McGee, anyone ever listened to him on the radio? Dr. Vernon McGee, the old Bible bus, uh, East Texas accent, but he lived in Southern California, had a church there in Southern California. But the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee, he mentions that in his, uh, in, his, um, in his office, he had a little booklet that he always kept in his office. Uh, it was about Acts chapter 2, and the little booklet was called Spiritual Fingerprints of the Visible Church. Spiritual Fingerprints of the Visible Church. In other words, this spiritual church that should be visibly representing Christ should have certain fingerprints that you would always be able to to identify, and they're found right here in Acts chapter 2. And we see these fingerprints, which I referenced earlier as a blueprint. 
as a blueprint as foundational aspects of a church that is walking and is alive in the Spirit of God. You've all, we've all met people that we look like they are, they are physically alive, but they seem dead. And we've seen churches that seem dead, and God wants us to be walking alive in the power of the Holy Spirit. But note the first couple words of verse 42. Look back in your Bibles, verse 42. The first couple of words here. And they continued steadfastly. I put up on the screen, steadfastly. In the Greek, proskaterio, which means to adhere, to be devoted to, to give constant and unremitting care, to continue all the time in a place to persevere and to not faint. In other words, your total focus is I am going to stay close to Jesus. And what things were they giving constant attention to the priorities of their collective lives as believers? What starts right after that same, same verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the first one. I put all four in list there in the apostles' doctrine. Now, this was not things the apostles were making up. What was the apostles' doctrine? Well, we know what it was. Peter stood up. What did Peter do? Give his opinion? Nope. He preached from Joel, and he preached from Psalms. And then after he was done preaching from Joel and Psalms, he told the witness of Jesus. The apostles' doctrine was everything from Genesis to Malachi, because that was the written scripture at the time. And everything Jesus had given them in three years of teaching them and training them, everything Jesus taught, they taught. And oh, by the way, the apostles, the things that they received from Jesus become Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and much of the New Testament. There's some other things later that God gave to Paul, some other things later he gave to John. Does that make sense? So the apostle doctrine is the Tanakh, which is the Torah, and all the rest of the books of the Old Testament, which make up Genesis or um, after the first five books, all the way through Malachi, and then everything Jesus taught, that is the apostles' doctrine. So they would give you nothing unless it came from the Scriptures or from Jesus, and then later it would be written into the Gospels themselves and in the New Testament. So the apostles' doctrine, obviously, this is the Word of God. They were abiding in God's Word. The question is, are you abiding in God's Word? Are you abiding daily in His Word? Is this church committed to his word? I'll tell you it is. I'm committed to this church. Church is going to commit to his word, even if it gets really unpopular and all of America by 10 years says, we'll believe anything unless it's the Bible. We're still going to teach the Bible here. Amen? Is, are we committed? But are you committed personally? Are you reading God's word daily? We must be committed and we must remain committed to the word of God. Everything else is changing. That's why people's opinions have been changing in the last 20 years on all kinds of things. They can't tell the difference between a boy and a girl or a cup and a rainbow or anything else. I don't know where the cup came from, but anyway. <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. But they don't make sense either, so it, all, it makes perfect sense. But no matter what changes, we have to, the Word of God is our compass. 
it gives us true north. It tells us what's true. It doesn't matter what everyone says. God said it, that settles it. What doesn't matter if people believe it or not? Noah was the only one that believed a flood was coming. Guess who was right? Right? Well, the rest of the world said, science says there will be no flood. Um, I heard this recently. I love this point by a pastor. He's like, if you were talking to people say, well, science doesn't match up the Bible. He goes, quit trying to convince them that science, first of all, in many cases, science absolutely matches up with the Bible. But don't try and convince them it does. We believe in a virgin birth. That will never line up with science. Amen? Jesus was born of a virgin. That happens once. It's supernatural. God spoke the universe into existence. That's supernatural. The Word of God is our compass. Now, there's a lot of science things that do line up. But again, God spoke it all into existence. He's the one that created the laws of gravity but also he's the one that created the commandments and the instructions. Number two, he goes on, uh, not only the apostles' doctrine, and fellowship, fellowship. Jesus set the model for fellowship. Jesus was in fellowship with the 12, was he not? Went everywhere with them. He demonstrated that fellowship is essential for discipleship. Fellowship. How many think you could have a really good relationship and marriage but never have fellowship? No, it's impossible. Fellowship is part of your being able to disciple one another, your being able to grow in God's grace. Fellowship, being able to talk, being able to communicate, being able to love each other and care for one another. Spend time, and fellowship always requires time. Discipleship always requires time. Nobody is called to a lone ranger Christian life. So, you know, here, here's your lone ranger Christian life. I only need to come to church, I slip in, I hear a message, I take about 20% of it that I like, I go home, and I do the rest of my Christian life through radio, through uh, things on my iPad, and I don't need people. This only happened, you don't need people unless God banishes you to Patmos or prison, right? <laughs> Patmos or prison. Other than that, you are called to fellowship. Everyone is. Which, by the way, that resulted in Patmos in prison, resulted in Revelation being written and other books of the uh, Bible. So if God sends you there, he's not going to send you there to write new scriptures, don't worry about that. But if he sends you there for persecution, which is isolation there, then that's one thing. Otherwise, you're called to be, I'm called to be, the early church was called to be, last 2,000 years the church is called to be, in fellowship with other believers. And by the way, Paul originally was released from prison. And what did he do? He went straight back into fellowship. Uh, John eventually got off the Isle of Patmos. He went back to the church of Ephesus, and he went right back into fellowship. So even when they were released from that, they didn't stay in that isolation. And here's another thing you got to understand. Heaven is full of fellowship. If you don't like fellowship, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> Hell is full of isolation. Heaven's full of fellowship. Heaven's all about us being in harmony in a relationship. So you have to start practicing this now because heaven's full of fellowship. It's also full of worship. There's a lot of Bible. You might not like that. Hopefully you do. Jesus is the Word made flesh. So all of this is going to be in heaven. So we understand that these things that God is teaching us are really uh, just kind of a foretaste of the glory divine that is coming. Heaven's going to be full of fellowship. But the early church, uh, they loved and encouraged one another 
in fellowship, in coming together, in uh, having relationships that were consistent, not once a year, like people you see once a year at Christmas or Thanksgiving, but consistent in relationship. Uh, are you in regular, consistent fellowship with other believers? If you're not, you need to say, Lord, I need, I need to address that. I need, I need to be in regular fellowship. And believe it or not, if you actually say, hey, I want to be in fellowship, there's people here that will gladly take you up on it. They will gladly take you up on it. Obviously, we have, uh, I think we mentioned next week, the young at heart and the senior class, but we've got young adults, we've got high school ministry, there's other things, but uh, just staying after church sometimes, not making a beeline to the car, you know, just getting to know people. These are things that all are steps in growing in fellowship. Uh, the next one he says in this same uh, verse, uh, the Apostles' Doctrine, and in fellowship, and in the breaking of bread. Uh, this is the centrality of the Lord's Supper, uh, but it's not exclusively only the Lord's Supper, but, but that's in clear view, and I'll talk about there's some other things around the Lord's Supper that are uh, connected to this. But, you know, that every month we will always, at Calvary Chapel Richmond, every single month, take of the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. And so this breaking of the bread, it's so important. Jesus is saying, first of all, you all, all of you in the body of Christ, all of us that are saved, all of us that are born again, uh, to remember his death and resurrection is essential. Amen? But also to grow in gratitude and to grow in thanksgiving towards it. But as we come together in the breaking of bread and the, and the Lord's Supper, our unity becomes a unity in Christ. In other words, Jesus sits at the center of our relationship together. So we're all, all of our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And our eyes are fixed on Jesus. We see less of each other's flaws. We see more of Jesus' perfection. So the breaking of bread is so important, uh, the, the work of communion, the work of the Lord's Supper. But this is also, you kind of come out from the Lord's Supper itself, you also find that when everyone is in close relationship with Jesus, guess what? All other relationships get closer too. Everyone's closer to Jesus, all the other relationships thereby benefit. So it's also inclusive, uh, the Lord's Supper here, of walking and growing in discipleship with other believers, and this overlaps with fellowship as well. Matter of fact, all these overlap. They're not just in a vacuum. Each one is connected uh, to the next. And the last one here, he says, and in prayers. We know how important prayer was. Jesus told them to wait. Uh, the disciples had already understood that Jesus taught them to pray. When they thought, wait, the next 10 days was a 10-day prayer meeting, not a nonstop prayer meeting. They would go home and sleep. We talked about this. But prayer was a part of every one of those 10 days from ascension to the Holy Spirit coming and baptizing the church. So prayer was essential. We know that Jesus modeled a prayer life. We know that Jesus was devoted to prayer. We know that he taught the disciples to pray. And when the 12 apostles were uh, taught by Jesus after he ascended to heaven, guess what they did? They taught the church <coughs> to pray. And they still are teaching us to pray even by the text we're looking at this morning. But the 10 days, as I mentioned, were bathed in prayer. But they didn't stop praying after Pentecost. They continued to pray. And we see the amazing results here as they continued to be a praying uh, group of believers after the Holy Spirit already fallen. They continued to pray. And let me ask all of us, 
Does anyone here think that God has changed his mind on these four essentials? That God said, you know what? In 2023, we need a slicker, better, way more fancy way of doing this, right? Does anyone think that God has thought this is out out of date? No, not changed one bit. Everything on that list is still the model for us seeing revival either personally or any chance of seeing revival outside these four walls or inside these four walls. Do we think God would have us prioritize these in our lives and in this church in 2023? Well, yeah. He's not saying, hey, you know, that, that was great for the first century. You guys don't need to prioritize that. They, they, were, they went a little overboard. They were a little overboard on these things. No. I recently uh, read a study. Uh, it was really kind of eye-opening. I read a study that 30 to 40 years ago, the committed church member attended church about three times a week. Now, let me stop there for a second before I read the rest of the, uh, or mention the rest of the study. I don't think that everyone 30 years ago needed to be at church three times a week because some of that became legalism. You ever heard that if the doors are open, you better be here? You know, that kind of, there was preaching like that in 1975, and, you know, if the doors are open, you better be there, and all this other stuff. But um, even though there was things that could become legalism, and, and, and even when I first got saved, I couldn't even, I could never come on a Wednesday night, and my wife can tell you that for the first six or seven years of my prior career, I flew on a Monday, wouldn't fly back till a Thursday. Or I could never go to a Wednesday night service, not in my hometown. Although I did many times when I was on business trips, I would go to, I would find a Calvary Chapel in the city I was in and go on a Wednesday night when my other friends or colleagues were out at a bar that night or something like that. So there were times where I could still do something different. But there definitely has been, on the one hand, you had people guilted into things, and that's not good. But you also had people that just had a higher level of commitment. It wasn't even just churches. People were committed. They'd go to the Kiwanis Club four times a month. They they do all kinds of other stuff. The, the commitment level of Americans like, you know, like this. Um, getting people, even the word RSVP, I don't even think this generation knows what RSVP means. Uh, they have no idea. RSVP means I'll show up if I think I want to at the very last possible second. You know, our, uh, but all that notwithstanding, 30 years ago, three times a week was the norm. 20 years ago, the committed believer or the committed church member was down to three times a month, 20 years ago. Then 10 years ago, it went to twice a month. And today, in 2023, the fastest growing segment in the American church is the once per month group, the fastest growing segment. Frankly, Look at the rest of verse 43, uh, 42 and 43. It says, uh, after it says, and they continued in the breaking of bread and prayers. Look at the next verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. But that first part, then fear came upon every soul. Frankly, we have lost our love for the gospel. I'm talking about in America. On the whole, not everybody, but on the whole, we've lost our love for the gospel, we've lost our zeal for Jesus, and we have no fear of the Lord. I mean, for the most part, you know our country has no fear of the Lord. We've got literally sex acts taking place in parades in this country. 
I mean, there's no fear of God whatsoever. They, there's no, they think uh, things that God did in the old days are just a fantasy. We have no fear of the Lord. But even my believers don't have much fear of the Lord. Uh, how many played sports and you had a healthy fear of your coach? Yeah, I mean, some of you did. You knew that, uh, good guy. Uh, but when he says this rule, he means this rule. Uh, this one's not going to budge. And there's a lot of rules that God's not going to budge on. He's not going to change this list, by the way. He's not going to change the list. But with the fear of the Lord, it begins to change us. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, the more they were faithful to prayer and the Word and the fellowship and the Lord's Supper and discipleship, the more they were faithful, it led to more awe of God, more wonder of God, more respect for God, more of understanding the holiness of God. Not, this is old and boring. They didn't come to that conclusion, this is old and boring, this is old hat, why did Peter lead us into this? They weren't talking like the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. But their devotion to the word, to fellowship and discipleship and prayer, it gave them a healthy fear of the Lord. It says, if all souls, everyone, I would love for every single person in this church to have a healthy fear of the Lord. This is not like running scared of God. This is a real awe and reverence for God. Do you understand the difference, right? A reverence for God. How many of you are glad God's holy? Like, you don't want him not to be holy. And you are glad he has unlimited power, and you're glad he has the ability to save people. So that gives you an awe and a respect for the Lord. I, I, I would never want to step into this pulpit not having a healthy fear of the Lord. Otherwise, I could just be a hireling. And there we have a lot of that in this country. Just kind of you know, pay, pay me a certain amount, say whatever you want to say. Paul talks about that. It will heap up in the latter days. But they all had this healthy fear of the Lord, which led to being filled with the Holy Spirit and refilled with the Holy Spirit, and power was poured out. It said, and signs were wonders were done. And take note where the signs and wonders came from. I want you to pay close attention to that in verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul. That was the believers. Fear, fear of the Lord came upon the church, which, which uh, purified more of the work of the Holy Spirit, and many wonders and signs were done. Then there was room for the Holy Spirit to move because sin was dealt with properly. Priorities were right. The Holy Spirit says, now I'm going to pour out sign and wonders. But it says, through the apostles. You ever turned on the TV and there's like this 20,000 person church and every single person there thinks they're an apostle? Like they all think they're apostles. They're not. The signs were done through the apostles, the 12. They were given, Jesus. why did Jesus give these powers to the apostles and not to any old Christian? Well, because they were the ones that witnessed his death and his resurrection and his earthly ministry. And because when they were fanning out, and they would all die martyrs' death with the exception of John, they had exhibited some of the same power that testified to the resurrection. And that was only until the scriptures themselves were completed. Once you finish the canon of scripture, the word of God is its own magnificent power. Now, it doesn't mean that God just still doesn't do miracles and that God didn't step outside the 12 on occasion. Philip the Evangelist, for example, God gave him the power to do miracles. But this was all for the advancing of the gospel while the scriptures were being written. But just note that Luke is very specific here. He Luke's a very detailed guy. He says, through the apostles. He makes sure to write that uh, in detail. Verses 44 and 45, 
now all who believe were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. These disciples of the early church, they remained close. And the love of Christ and the bond of the Spirit worked in them in such a way that they became compassionate and generous. And they saw needs. Isn't it great when people see needs without being forced to see needs? You know, they just see needs and fill needs. Uh, in our house, especially when our kids were younger, we liked when they saw needs without me and mom having to identify said need. Because we probably had identified certain needs a thousand times. This is a need. We need your help. We can't do it all. You need to do your part. But isn't it great when God then starts to move among people and brothers and sisters see each other's needs and they start to fill those needs? And then we, I, I see a lot of that happening. Like, the young at heart ladies here, you guys are great at meeting each other's needs. Now, we want to come in and actually help over the top and meet needs that, that we can do as well. But when I see you know, fathers ministering to other fathers or young people ministering to other young people meeting needs, and they obviously went well beyond uh, all of the things that we would kind of think of normal uh, to the point that they were selling possessions and dividing them and saying, hey, you're without a car? Uh, I've got three. I will give you one, and if I have to sell a piece of property to help you, I'll even do that. That's pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Now, there were some things that were a little bit different there, but not totally. Um, you probably, if you've read any commentaries, you've done any study, the early church at that time, they were anticipating a time of great persecution potentially coming. They took Jesus literally when Jesus, on the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said that Jerusalem would be leveled, right? He said, he looked at the temple, he said, not one stone will be left upon another. They fully anticipated a time that there would be the things that Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse would take place. They thought it was imminent. They thought Jerusalem would be destroyed. And they're like, hey, what good will be all this stuff we own if it's all going to be leveled anyway? We might as well share it for the betterment of everyone. But isn't that a little bit of the mindset we should have right now too? If Jesus' return is getting closer and closer and closer, and if he's going to return in 20 years and you've got 45 years worth of stuff, shouldn't we think a little bit more like that? You know, so that there, again, they did, they did anticipate Jerusalem being destroyed. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story was God had made them more noticing each other's needs, more compassionate, and more generous. So they, they, didn't, they weren't trying to negotiate with God on their time, talent, and treasure, which most Americans are. Like, if I give you this much, will you not bother me? Right? Basically, that's the way a lot of people think. They weren't thinking that way. They say, Lord, we want to give it all to you and whatever you want to do with it. And if we see needs, we want to help. Uh, as anyone had need, they divided it. Again, all of that was the work of the Spirit. The Spirit convinced them to live selflessly. The Spirit convinced them to give generously. The Spirit convinced them that to serve others, to wash feet as Jesus did, was what God had called them to do. Now, what's interesting, as you go on here, look at verse 46 and 47 as we bring it to a close. So they do that. They're dividing, they're giving, 
They're giving selflessly their seen needs. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord, they continue in these, uh, these four things we see on the screen. Continue with one accord in the temple and the breaking of bread and house to house, house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. They simplified their lives. They centered their lives around serving Christ and serving others. And they built their priorities around everything the apostles presented. And lo and behold, they weren't miserable. You would think, that's what I thought before I got saved. I never envisioned myself in a pulpit before I got saved, much less not being on the beach on a nice Sunday, because I lived in South Florida. I did not envision myself being in a stuffy church on a boring Sunday when there was fun out there to be had on the sand and the surf, right? So lo and behold, they give all this of themselves to the Lord, and they're full of gladness and rejoicing. God breaks a lot of people's really incorrect views of what it will mean to give themselves to the Lord. They, they have this vision that if they give themselves to God, their whole life will be ruined. And in fact, their whole life will finally be found. They're glad. They're full of joy. They're rejoicing. They have less stuff, and yet they're happier. And it becomes a mighty witness to the point that people around them are getting thirsty for the gospel, and people are getting saved daily, which is giving them more joy of seeing souls added than money added to their bank account. They're laying up treasure in heaven. The lost saw the genuine life of these first century believers. What about us as we kind of bring it to a close? What about us? Will we return, us, Calvary Chapel, Richmond, us as believers, will we return to the priorities of the church birth and the revival of Pentecost? Or will we remain in the lukewarm American churchianity? Notice I didn't say Christianity. The American churchianity, which is a combination of whatever we want it to be, and we mix in just enough to have our consciences feel just... We know how to, we know how to stabilize the seesaw. I mentioned we're going to go back to Jerusalem in 2024 in February. Uh, I haven't been there since 2019. But I pray that we return to Pentecost now. Amen? They were returned to Pentecost. Now, the apostles prayed, but they couldn't make the decision for the early church. But thankfully, almost all the souls there, the fear of the Lord fell on, and they all made the same choice as the apostles. Do you know how much joy that must have given the apostles? That everyone in the congregation decided to go all in? The apostles were like, thank you, Lord. You know, they didn't have a Judas at the time, thankfully. I mean, everyone went all in for the Lord. The apostles couldn't make the decision, but thankfully they did. You know, it's Father's Day, as I mentioned, um, and you guys know in the book of Joshua, you've probably all seen this passage before, Joshua said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua 24, 15. The apostles could not choose for the early church, but thankfully the early church chose the same as they did to give their lives to Jesus. I can't choose for Calvary Chapel Richmond. I can pray for Calvary Chapel Richmond. I can choose for myself, but I can't choose for the church because you guys are adults. 
And if you're not adults, you're not my kids, so I can't choose for your kids either. And my girls are 18 to 22 now. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> our girls are grown up. I can't even really choose. I can't even really choose for them. Now, most of you have, some of you have kids and grandkids. You can't choose for your kids anymore. And some of your kids are making choices you wish that they would make different ones. You can't make the choice for them anymore because they're now grown adults, but you can pray for them to make the right choice, amen? I can pray for the church. You can pray for the church. You can pray for people in your family. We can choose to pray, and I hope that people would look at this and say, I have a healthy enough love for Jesus and a fear of the Lord to choose. I want to choose correctly. Remember the revivals I mentioned, Jeremiah Lamphere, he said, I can't save New York, but I can start a little prayer meeting. Isn't that great? I can start a little prayer meeting. Uh, Evan Roberts, can't save Wales, but I can start teaching and preaching. Little 16-year-old girl, I can't do anything, but I can stand and blurt out, I love Jesus with all my heart. Little did she know what that would do. Ugandan Christian, uh, he can't start a revival, but he can go make things right with one other Christian walking more than 100 miles to resolve a 20-year nagging guilt that he should have dealt with 20 years earlier and finally did. Maybe there's someone in this room, you have someone to go make something right with. God can pour out a citywide Pentecost or a personal Pentecost at any time. Amen? Our job is to give Jesus the total surrender of our personal life, and he'll do the impossible. Amen? The apostles, they were spiritual fathers following Jesus. My prayer is that all of us as believers, we would follow the apostles. They were spiritual fathers. We would follow their example. They weren't perfect, but we'd follow their example as they followed Jesus. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again that your word forever settled. But Lord, it will unsettle us in a good way to show us where our priorities are not where they need to be, where uh, we are in disobedience, or we are in a state of apathy or lethargy, or Lord, we have neglected so great a salvation. And Lord, you've told us in Hebrews to lay aside every sin and every weight that would hinder us from running the race with endurance, and Lord, we want to have a steadfastness, a unremitting care to the things that you have called us to. Lord, a life of being disciples, that our eyes are fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith, that we're seeking first your kingdom and your rights, and then all the other things will be added. But we're not seeking those things. We're seeking you first. And we pray, Lord, that you would stir personal revival with many individuals in this room, and Lord, show each person where they're really at if, if the work of revival is needed. And before we close in song with your heads bowed, I just want to ask this. I asked the first service, and we had a great response to this. Um, as I mentioned in Psalm 119, when I cover Psalm 119 on Wednesday, you're going to see the psalmist in 119 was already someone who really loved God, but yet prayed numerous times in the psalm for him to be revived. So you may be here this morning and say, I already love the Lord, and yet I still sense I need revival. 
or you may be quite lukewarm. So you can be follow the Lord and need revival, or quite lukewarm and need revival, or in outright rebellion and need revival. But without knowing, my hand is up. Raise your hand if you need more of a personal revival of the Spirit of God in your life. Yeah. That's an honest response. And probably any hand that's not up, God would say, you know I need to talk. Because he'll see things you're not seeing. And the apostles would tell all of us, say, hey, here's the thing. Just go and lay it all at the feet of Jesus. Stop trying to hold on to all this stuff. When we release it, the joy and the rejoicing and the witness and the power of the Holy Spirit flows. Let me pray over all. Lord, you've seen these hands, and I pray, Jesus, that you would stir not only the work of revival, but even get specific with each of us, myself included, Lord. Sometimes our steadfast attention is to a smartphone, not the true and living God. We pray that you would show us those areas that need to be recalibrated, need to be reprioritized to seek you first in your righteousness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close in worship.